in the same way that a lot of the people at Stamen are designers who then learn to become cartographers or programmers who learn to become cartographers, in some sense, some cartographers are like learning to be designers or trying to learn like what is it what is it to see the world as a as a design problem, a design challenge. And for me, so much of that just comes to thinking about how users are going to use something. So user experience design, user interaction, those are all things that are our specialties, but are for me kind of at the core of what design is. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Ellen McConkie. Ellen is a lead cartographer at Stamen Design. And today on the podcast, we're talking about something called full stack cartography. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. We start off talking about base maps, defining what a base map is, what it isn't. We move on to vector tiles. How do you make efficient vector tiles? And towards the end, Ellen shares some really, really interesting insights about what the future of cartography might look like and some of the challenges we're, we're facing. But before we get there, I want to tell you about an experiment that I'm running with a company called Open Cage Data. So Open Cage Data is run by a friend of mine. They do geocoding. And together we're running a marketing experiment. But instead of me talking about Open Cage, what they've done is they've brought slots on this podcast. They've brought promotional slots on this podcast, like the one that you're listening to now, and given it away to OpenStreetMap projects. And so one of the winners of, of one of these slots is healthsites.io. So let me tell you a little bit about this project because it, I think it's worth knowing about. Healthsites.io is a, a global health science mapping project building an open data commons of health facility data within OpenStreetMap. So this is an open data collaboration. They collaborate with users, trusted partners, and OpenStreetMap to capture and validate locations and contact details for every health facility and make this data freely available under the open data license. With the whole goal of creating an online map of every health facility in the world and make the details of each location easily accessible. So again, this is healthsites.io. There'll be a link to this in the show notes of this episode. Uh, I hope you take the time to check it out. It looks like an, an amazing project. Hi, Alan. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for taking the time to, to talk with me. I've been a huge admirer of the company that you work for, Stamen Design, for, for some time now. I know that you're a lead cartographer there, but before we get into the conversation today, maybe you could just introduce yourself. Who are you? Like, how did you get involved in, in cartography? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me on this podcast. It's always something I'm excited to to talk about. Yeah. So I came to to cartography. It's something I, for a long time, I didn't know actually was a real job that people had. I just grew up loving maps and always being interested in maps. And most of my family loved maps as well. But I took a circuitous route where I, yeah, I was a computer programmer for a little bit, tried to work in illustration for a little bit, and eventually thought, maybe I should find a way to see if there's maps that I could do for work. And I started taking some GIS courses in graduate school. And I was studying, in particular, my research was looking at crowdsourced map making. So this was the middle of the 2000s when OpenStreetMap really came onto the scene. And so I was writing a master's dissertation about how do people create maps uh, when they have to collaborate with each other? How do um, they collect data as non-professionals? And it was through that that I learned about Simon that was making a lot of maps working with OpenStreetMap and managed to meet some people who worked at Stamen at some OpenStreetMap conferences and got a job there. So I've been at Stamen now for nine years 
um, working on all kinds of mapping projects and and data visualization projects as well. Um, uh, only maybe half of the things we do at Stamen Design have maps in them. There are some that are just pure non-spatial data visualization, but I tend to work with the maps. Just out of curiosity, so, so when you talk about design like uh, projects or data visualization projects that are, are not necessarily involving geospatial data, what is the main difference? Like, There must be some sort of general rules, I guess, when it comes to visualizing data, because I think that's what I think about when I think about cartography. There must be a lot of crossover between those two things, or is it a completely different mindset in terms of working on projects? There is a lot of crossover. There's just certainly you know, knowing how the eye perceives colors and shapes and what it can distinguish, what it can't distinguish how you aggregate data for a choropleth map. There's a lot of the same concepts, how you might put it into a bar chart that's not a map. But there are, I think, some of the really big differences is that a data visualization that's not spatial, as the creator of that visualization, you have complete choice over where things end up on the page or the screen. The shape is completely up for grabs. But if you're making a, a map that has data in it or data on it, you only can go so far in distorting the map before it no longer becomes a map. And you are really relying on your map reader's knowledge about where things are in the world. They will know something about the states or the provinces or countries or cities that are on your map, and they'll be bringing some of their own knowledge to it. Where someone who's looking at a bar chart or other kinds of data viz, they might not have any preconceived notions about any of the information. So that's why it's more of a blank slate. Is it? somehow nicer working with those constraints like ah, oh, okay i don't have to make a decision here about where the lake is that the lake is where the lake is the forest is where the forest is kind of thing as opposed to that blank slate that you were talking about before it's nice yeah it's a, a, a little bit of both you have some blank slate but you have some some constraints it's not like the the other end of that spectrum um, would be something more like scientific visualization like if i have to illustrate the inside of a human heart or or something where maybe all dimensions are fixed and you can't really overlay too many things on top of it. Cartography is in between those two extremes. So some of it is constraints and some of it you have really a lot of flexibility over color and the symbols that go on the map. You mentioned earlier on that you used to work as a computer programmer, so a, a software developer, and now you're over in, in the more sort of design end of the spectrum. And I really want to dive into this concept that you've actually introduced me to, this idea of full-stack cartography in this episode. But we, we, we need a little bit of background, we need a little bit of context before we get there. And I want to start with the idea of, of a base map. When I say base map to you, what is a base map and, and what is it for? A base map is often what you see on a web page that you're familiar with, maybe a reference map. It's similar to an offline mapping world, a reference map that might be a road map or a navigation map, you don't necessarily know what its purpose is going to be for. It has to be a map that can work for a lot of situations. The person who makes it doesn't know what the end user is going to be using it for. So when we're on the on the web, the base map is sort of the background map. It is usually the reference information can be roads, certainly boundaries and other kind of generic points of interest that we then might overlay information on top of. So you might put choropleth shapes on top of, or you might put, if you are something like Google and someone is searching for a restaurant, you might put markers on top of it, on top of what's the base map. The base map itself 
is sort of pre-generated that background context. A lot of the reason why we have to do it that way on the web is that it is complicated and requires a lot of data, um, a lot of computer processing to make that base map for the whole world that you can zoom in on and zoom in and out of. So this distinction of what is the base map and what is the overlays on top of it is really driven by the fact that a base map is difficult to do on the fly. Some of that has been changing over the years, but certainly this distinction of what a base map is kind of comes back to those early days of Google Maps and OpenStreetMap in the around 2005 and onward, where you had a map that was really hard to make a map of the whole world that is snappy and you can zoom in and out of. So you'd have that one base map, and then maybe later you could develop different types of base maps, have a few more options. And that's a little bit more of the world that we're at now, where base maps can be lots of things and you can have more than one base map. I've been working as a, a GIS specialist for, for some time now, and I remember the bad old days when we had to maintain base maps ourselves. So the organization that I was working for at the time had their own base map. So we were constantly aggregating data and you know weaving changes into the system and updating this base map. And to be frank, it was awful. It was terrible. It's so much nicer now just being able to drag and drop you know, one of these sort of standard base maps in and then sort of build on project on top of that. Yeah, and I think the fact that People assume now they expect a base map to be global, which is a big ask. It needs to be something that you can zoom in on some random city in some part of the world and have a street map of it with all the names and all the roads, even though the map maker who created it probably didn't check the data for that area and didn't actually you know, look at this particular label placement. You, you need to be able to create something that anyone can zoom in on anywhere. Okay, so, so global base maps are, are difficult, and I, I totally understand that. When, when you talk about, and I think you raise a really interesting point, that the map maker has probably never zoomed into every possible location on that map and checked to see if the decisions they have made along the way work there, right? So there's got to be some sort of scalability to the decisions, to the design decisions, the way of thinking that applies at, at these sort of, at multiple spatial resolutions. That's got to be... A tough problem to solve. Yeah, for sure. And really, when we're designing maps, and this gets to that distinction we talked about a little bit, that it is a design task, but it is also designed through creating rules, creating code, uh, really, literally, that is transforming data into, into the map. To design a base map, you're not using Illustrator. You're not using typical design tools where you're moving things around. You maybe get some graphical feedback while you're using some of these design tools um, that we can talk about if we want to get into that part of things. But the end result of what you put into the design tool is, is code instructions for data input comes in and it spits out a map following these instructions for if a city has a certain population, it needs to have a label this big, you know, and those it just kind of goes through this, this process and produces a map on the other side that you haven't ever seen. As the cartographer who made it, you have to hope your rules are going to apply to all the information that might be fed into your map without being able to check it all yourself. So I introduced this idea of full stack cartography but before, and I wonder if we could try and illustrate it with an example. So we know a little bit more about base maps now, and we understand it's a difficult task. And oftentimes the user is expecting it to be a global task. So not just like a local area or even a country, but a global base map. Let's say I, I came to you and I wanted to, to build a mountain bike app and I already knew I needed a custom base map and I knew that this map was going to be consumed on mobile devices. Where would I start? Could, could you 
sort of walk me through the process of building this custom map that will be consumed on mobile devices for, for mountain bikers? That's a great example because it's the kind of thing we can do now that we couldn't really do in the very early days of web maps. And the early web map on, say, the first Google map that came out, they didn't know if someone was going to use it for mountain biking or if someone was going to use it for a road trip or planning a trip on a subway. They had to make a map that worked for everything. Now we can have customized base maps, which means we can make all those decisions from the very beginning, You know, thinking about what data is getting input, how it's getting processed, how it is getting rendered as the map on the end. We can make all those decisions knowing what that use case is. So this is what people are often hiring us to do now. And so, yeah, the full stack means we look at every step along the way. And a lot of those steps use design thinking, but don't necessarily use design tools. They'll use they'll use code and scripts and things like that. So for something like uh, a mountain biking map, we would first think about what data is available, what data is out there. We will usually lean really heavily on on our clients' expertise. So if someone comes to Stamen and if they want to make a mountain biking app, I imagine they are pretty expert mountain bikers or they know the best mountain bikers and they know what kind of data they've already been trying to use. They might know what's missing. Our mountain bikers keep saying, we use this map because it's the best, but it's missing these particular things. And so we, we always start out by trying to find out what is already being used by our clients. And it could be that they know that there's a company out there that collects this information and you could license it, license this geographic data, or maybe it doesn't exist in a way where you could buy it. Maybe it only exists in some kind of crowdsourced data source, whether it's OpenStreetMap or maybe there's an online community where mountain bikers are sharing this information. Things like what is the difficulty of a particular route or what is the surface? Is it gravel? Is it dirt? Is it available year round? Those are the kinds of information that if that data is available in a geospatial format, we would try to incorporate that into the map. So you could imagine a generic base map, something that Google might have. It might show trails. It might not distinguish whether it's a hiking trail or a mountain biking trail. But if we were going to create a base map for mountain bikers, we would want to think about, yeah, can we show on the map the difficulty level or the surface? And if so, we need to get that information in the data at the very beginning so that we can use it throughout all the steps of the full stack cartography. So let, let's say I had the data, like I, I, I was an incredibly thoughtful client and I came to you and said, look, I've, I've taken the time to find the data. Here is a list of the functionality I want to have in my map, like the, the kinds of things I want to have in my map. And here's all the data to, to achieve that. Here you go. What, what would you do then? What are the next steps in the process? Well, great. Yeah, the next steps would be, we obviously need some more context to go around that information. So you might have provided all of the trails and a ton of metadata attached to those trails, but maybe you don't didn't include the the land cover or the elevation. So we might think, what other data sets do we need to join with that? Maybe we need some kind of land cover so we know if these trails are in a forested area or if it's you know a, a grassy mountainside. Those are interesting things we might want to include. We definitely need things like the roads you get there. You know, how are you driving and parking? Is there a parking lot at the trailhead. Those are all things we might, again, source from OpenStreetMap or from some other provider of data. So we bring all these data sources together. We'd also have to look for places where there might be conflicts or where we'd have to conflate the data, because maybe you have these really detailed trail routes 
And if we try to overlay them with a more generic data set, like maybe what might be in OpenStreetMap, maybe yours are, have more detail and we would end up with double lines on the map. So we'd have to figure out, are there names we could use in the data that we could join the, join the attributes together? Or we figure out in this area where you've got your trails, we just delete any of the trails from the other data set so we don't have duplicates. So kind of conflating multiple inputs is something that also has to happen in this sort of data processing step. This sounds like the, the kinds of problems that the data scientists face. You know, what, what do they say? Like 80% of their time is spent cleaning the data. Is that a big part of what you do as well? Yeah, it is. And, and that's where our cartographers on our team, we think of ourselves or we often call ourselves a technical cartographer because we need our cartographers to be able to, to some extent, yeah, speak the language of databases and data cleaning. So that'll often fall on the, our cartographers to, to be doing a lot of that work as well. Because how you conflate that data, how you filter and clean it, the decisions you make to do that filtering, you want to make those decisions having in mind what the final representation will be. So you want as close a connection between those different steps in the process as possible. So if it's the same people or at least the same team doing that, uh, it makes it much smoother. And so we usually will, yeah, we'll usually have often the same people or people working very closely together doing those various steps. I've given you the data, we've, you, you've cleaned it, you've processed it, it's ready in, in a database or, or wherever it is now. What do we do now? Is it now we start looking at colors or do we think about generating tiles? Or what, what's the next step in the process? If we're going to have this work for, for the world, or even, even a lot of these examples could be if we're going to have a, a base map that is just for a country, same kind of concepts. We're, we're going to want this to be cut up into tiles, into map tiles, because otherwise this database could be gigabytes of data. There's no way we are going to make a, a mountain biking app on someone's phone, download gigs of data just to, to show these, this information because they only need to download the particular trails that are around them. They don't need it for the whole world. Just to stop you here, I just want to make sure that we're on the same page. When you're talking tiles, are you talking image tiles, vector tiles, or, or something different? Oh, yeah, these are vector tiles. And the history of how, how we tile maps it comes from image tiles from raster tiles. And this goes back to pretty much it was Google and OpenStreetMap really were the first places you see this. Before Google, really, if, if you've been around long enough, you remember things like, was it AltaVista or there was the, or, or MapQuest? Like there were some older maps where you select a part of the world and you make a request to a web page and it generates an image for you and then you download it. That's computationally intensive to do that each time. And so the innovation that that happened primarily by Google was we create these uniform tiles, uniform way of slicing up the map into squares, small at the time they were 256 by 256 pixel square images, and pre-generate all of those or most of them. And then when the web page requests a map of any arbitrary extent, you just grab the relevant tiles. So the innovation that that Google really had to make it easier and quicker to download a raster image of any arbitrary part of the world, they had pre-generated a lot of the world or all of the world in these map tiles, as which are a standard 256 by 256 square image. And then when a user on a web page requests part of the world, they would just stitch together the relevant tiles into that image. And then if you wanted to pan left or right, it would just grab a few more of those tiles 
and add them on there, then move the image to the side. So it was much faster to pan around and generate maps because they were pre-generated. Those were all images, but that same tiling scheme is still relevant today, but most maps tile up the data in chunks of the same size. So the data tiles, these are vector tiles, will contain the information for the attributes of any shapes that are within that tile and the geometries of those shapes. But then it's the client side that has the responsibility of applying colors and making that into something that is visually interpreted as a map. So it's the same, the same tiling scheme. There's a different set of tiles for every zoom level as well, but they're all pretty much pre-generated or they are easy enough to be generated on the fly and stitched together and downloaded to the client for just the area that you need at just the zoom level you need. Thank you very much for that. I, I really appreciate it. I think that there was a great sort of overview of, of how we got to, to vector tiles. Going back to our data now, it's on a database. What, what's your preferred method of, of making those vector tiles? Like if you could choose the stack to create them and host them on, what, what would it be? Well, there's a few different ways. Primarily, we, we really rely on the tools that, that Mapbox has created and, and continues to support, which means it's an open source set of tools for, for tiling the data and for serving them. And if we don't really need that many customizations, we could also just have Mapbox host them themselves. And you just, you just pay Mapbox for the amount of traffic, and the amount of data that you have up there. So for clients that only need a little bit of customization, often we will set them up with a Mapbox account. We will help them uh, upload the data. Mapbox can tile it, or we can tile it first and then just have Mapbox serve it. That's what we use for a lot of our smaller clients. But the really larger clients that we tend to work with, often for just, they, they will have their own, their own cloud infrastructure. They will already be paying for millions of servers or thousands of servers. and they will want to render those tiles themselves. They'll want to handle all that rather than paying Mapbox for that service. So then it, it becomes pretty much custom based on what kind of infrastructure they already have. But yeah, it's usually a mix of different open source tools, things that, that were either developed by Mapbox or that Mapbox open sourced, and then different parts of the open source community has built tools around those. There are a few different places you can, you can host tiles now. It's not just Mapbox, but they're all generally using interchangeable formats. Okay. When you decide to tile the data, so making those decisions about what objects are going to be visible where, and, and perhaps the, the size of them, how they're going to be displayed on a map, like how, how much do you need to know about, do you already have to have a design in mind that works at these different zoom levels before you create that tiling system and, and start tiling up the data? How does that work? Or do you just tile up the data and, and then start on the the design side of things, the, the visual aspect of, of the map? Yeah, again, it's a little bit of both. If you want the most efficient tiles, I mean, so each tile has some data in it. And when we're downloading them to a mobile client, we want them to be as small as possible just so that they're faster to load and we're using less bandwidth on the user's accounts. So you can, if you know exactly, for example, the mountain biking trails, maybe only at a certain zoom level do we need to tell whether it's gravel or dirt, right? Maybe when we're looking at a large park, we just want to know where the trails are. But then as you zoom in enough and you only see one or two trails, maybe that's when the map style would start to show a different texture or a different outline for the trails to show which one is gravel and which is dirt. If we know already when 
uh, we're thinking about this end style, then we can choose what attributes go into the map tiles at each zoom. And so I'll start throwing around some zoom numbers. And so like zoom, the way we think about zooms is like the whole world is zoom zero. And then as you zoom in and sort of double your zoom, it goes to zoom one, zoom two, something like zoom 20 is, is you know, street level in that kind of ballpark. So maybe we say if our map that we're designing doesn't need to know the surface of a trail until zoom 10, then when we're generating the zoom nine tiles, we will only include the shape of the trail and it'll be a fairly simplified shape, but we won't need to include the attribute surface equals gravel, surface equals dirt. So we'll be making those decisions. This part of uh, kind of defining how things go into each tile at each zoom level, we usually call that the schema of basically how the tiles are defined from the database. And yeah, for the best efficiency, you'll want to know how the style will look when you're making those decisions. And usually it's a back and forth through the process of developing a map. We might have some ideas first. We might create a style based on that, try it out a little bit, and then we'll realize, oh, we actually need that surface attribute at zoom eight instead of zoom 10. And then we can generate a new set of tiles. So there's a lot of back and forth. But what is available in the tiles really constrains and, and makes possible what the style looks like. So you have to have that be a back and forth conversation throughout the entire process from as early as possible to the, the final result. When you're saying uh, style and attributes there, are they actually the same thing? Or is there more information about how that particular geometry needs to be rendered? Is it more, more than just like, you know, this is a gravel path, like path with the attribute gravel on it? Is there more attribution in that tile about how that thing is going to be rendered at, at a different zoom level than, than just that attribute. Do you understand the question or have I confused you a bit? No, no, that makes perfect sense. And yes, there, the, the style is defined separately, although there, there is certainly a little bit of a gray area in some cases. But yeah, we've we pretty much defined how we decide what goes into each of these vector tiles, but then how they get displayed is the part we call the style sheet. Um, so this in, in the Mapbox ecosystem is defined in a JSON file. And what that does is it says in that JSON file, it'll say when there's a feature that is a mountain bike trail and it has the attribute equals dirt, then style it with a particular brown color or a particular texture. That step from attribute to representation happens in that style sheet, that in this case, a JSON file. So usually the tile itself, it has the attributes to make it possible to distinguish things when they need to be distinguished, but it doesn't include the information for how it should be shown. Okay, th thank you again. I really appreciate this. This is a whole bunch of stuff that I've never thought about before. So it, it's, it's super interesting. I want to stay with style attributes and, and geometries just for a second when we think about creating those tiles. Is there one that's that's sort of heavier than the other? I guess, it, does it like, can you say that in general, it's the geometry, like whether to include that geometry or not makes a big difference, the biggest difference to, to how efficient that tile is in terms of how much we're downloading, or is it more generally how many attributes are attached to those geometries? Again, do you understand where I'm trying to go? Yeah, it's, it's, usually, it's usually going to be the geometry is, is the heavier part. And there's also getting really into the weeds of how things are actually compressed and how the data is stored in each tile. There's a few different ways you could do that. But imagine we have a map of a particular neighborhood. It's kind of a street level tile. 
you might have 30 different features in one tile that are all uh, residential roads and they might all share the same attribute or they might have different attributes for the name of the road, but everything else might be, you know, the number of lanes or something that you might need for rendering. All of that is pretty small relative to the coordinates that are defining all of the nodes that define the shape of those roads um, or the shape of a forested polygon or especially a mountain biking trail where it might have a lot of twists in it instead of a neighborhood street, which might be relatively straight and only have a few nodes. But the geometries tend to be heavier than the attributes because each feature, ideally, you have narrowed down your attributes to just the ones that you're going to be using for rendering. So if we're at a zoom level where we're not putting the name on residential streets, then hopefully we've created our tiles so that they don't actually have that name attribute in the tile at that zoom level. So uh, I guess another way of making tiles um, more efficient, so you know, not, not as heavy in terms of download, would be just to exclude geometries. But uh, I guess at, at some stage, if they're in the tile set, you want to use some geometries. Is there a point where you think, where you make the decision to, okay, now it comes in, but we're going to simplify it and just simplify certain geometries within that tile set. And then, you know, as we get closer down, we, we need more details, show the entire geometry. Yeah, simplification is always essential. You really, there's really no reason to be putting in more more detail at a zoom level than you could show on a screen realistically. So pretty much when the tiles are generated for a particular zoom, there's always some simplification that is applied to them so that they, they are not over detailed. And this is a lot of the, um, the tiling tools, like when you upload to Mapbox, they will usually make some pretty educated guesses about how much detail you want. And you have a lot of settings you could change if you find, oh, I need it to be a little bit more detailed or I'm okay with a lot more simplification. Maybe I don't mind that look of a, of a simpler, kind of cleaner, smoother map. You can adjust all those things, but some standard simplification based on the zoom level, based on your expected, like like really how many pixels on the screen will you be able to distinguish these little jogs in the shape of a, of a mountain biking trail? You really don't need to include that. If you'll never see it at that zoom. So there's always simplification that is happening. Okay, so... Let's pretend for a second that I understand what you know about tiles and, and okay, we're, we've made our tiles. That problem is solved. We're, we've made our, our decisions there in terms of what should be in each tile and, and how it should be presented at, at different zoom levels. What, what about adding some color? What, what about choosing a palette? What about making decisions around the way we display geometries, the, the way we, we draw people's eye to certain features? What, what does that process look like? Yeah, that's usually much more uh, interactive for the the cartographer who's working because applying the color, applying the style, you can get pretty instantaneous feedback on that. All these earlier steps we've been talking about, generating the tiles, we can do what we can to make those quicker, but often it'll be something like, oh, I, I need to change the zoom level that this attribute comes in. I commit that code and then the tiles have to regenerate and that might take a day or it might take several days or it could take a long time. So don't get quite as fast turnaround. But once once we have those tiles in there in a, in a state we like them or we have a, a version we want to work from, then we use design tools. Like if we're doing this all within the Mapbox ecosystem, we'd be using Mapbox Studio. Outside of Mapbox, we tend to use a tool called Maputnik, which is an open source version of Mapbox Studio. And there's a few other ways you could do it. But you can pretty much instantaneously change the color that a 
features being displayed at. Uh, you could change the thickness. You could adjust all of these ways it's being styled and immediately see it on, on the map and see whether you like that change or not. Um, so it's a lot faster at this in terms of iteration at this process, but there are still so many uh, decisions you have to make about you might have 10 different types of trails and we have to make sure, do we want 10 different colors? Do three of them have the same color, but different thicknesses? These are all decisions we, we need to iterate on quite a bit. And so we've been building a lot of tools ourselves to help make that process easier. So we have some tools that would go through the style sheet and instead of applying it to a map, apply it to some abstract bar chart shape so I can see a stack of lines that are represent the 10 different roads I have in my data and see are their colors all the kind of the same family of color? Do they get darker from less important to more important as I expect them to be? Or is there some, you know, the, the colors don't fit together into a palette? So we're trying to find ways to make ourselves more, more efficient and a little bit more you know, coherent when we're picking a hundred or several hundred colors for for a map. But yeah, it's it's much more of a into the more familiar realm of design tools when you're you're choosing colors, you're choosing line thicknesses. You're trying to make something look good, look readable, make the distinctions you want to make distinctions, but also not distract where you don't want to distract the user. Thinking about the visual design of, of geometries, does Tobler's first rule of geography also apply here? Things that are closer together should be more related when, when we think about color as well? Yeah, yeah. I think things that are, if not spatially closer together, but conceptually closer together, it makes a lot of sense. And I think most people who will read a map have those types of expectations. So we might try to have most of the, of the roads be a certain family of colors. Maybe they're all different shades of gray. Maybe all of the footpaths and bicycle routes are all different shades of, of a green or something. So that you kind of, once you learn what one is, and you see something that looks similar on a map, you guess that it's probably a related kind of feature. So that way, I'm, if I'm panning across the map and the first time I see a service road going through a parking lot, I can tell, oh, that's probably a kind of a vehicle road versus that's some kind of non-motorized road that I hadn't seen before. So yeah, there's definitely relationships and families of colors and styles that we want to work with so that each decision is not completely standing on its own, and each feature is not something new that has to be re-understood by the user every time they see a new thing on the map. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. We've been talking about building that, this mountain biking map. Knowing that it's for mountain bikers, we've been talking about trails and, and forests and, and different kind of things, so trying to maybe draw the user's eye to those features. Do you also go over in the, on, on the other side and try and just, like, not focus on urban environments, for example, try and damp them down a little bit or, or do something there so they're not as relevant to the other features on the map where we want people to pay attention to them. Exactly. there, And that can be as simple as not including things like just some features you may, you may not even need to show on the map. If it's a map where you know no one's going to be parking a car, you might just not show any parking lots. Although in a mountain biking case, at least here in the US, a lot of people have to drive a car to get to the, where you're going to ride the mountain bike. Those are kind of things you could just simply leave out on the style. You could leave out in your tiles and make your tiles smaller. But we can also choose to yeah, de-emphasize things. So maybe 
we don't need to show freeways, uh, motorways in a big, bright yellow or orange. We can put them into the same gray palette as the other roads and sort of de-emphasize them. They're still there if the map user needs them for orientation. Like I wouldn't understand the shape of this particular park if I didn't know that there was this this motorway driving just to the side of it. Um, you might need things like that for orientation, even if you're actually not using it on the map. But it doesn't have to be prominent. It doesn't have to draw the eye. A lot of the same design concepts that apply to all kinds of other design tasks, like you know, what is the figure ground if you kind of blur your eyes, what jumps out in terms of color or just lightness and darkness or or the contrast between features. Those are all part of the design process when you're thinking about how do we emphasize certain things and de-emphasize others. It's super interesting talking to you about this kind of stuff. Uh, and I remember the first conversation we had, it was this theme that, that came out of the conversation and was design a, as a practice. And a lot of times I think, I think about design as being something where, where the end result is something decorative. But and of course, the, we're talking about cartography here, so you could argue that it, it's it's a very visual end result, but the practice of design is actually, it starts right at the start. So where does the data come from? How do we process it? How do we chunk it up into tiles? And it, it, it's kind of eye-opening. Was that what you expected your work as a cartographer to, to be like? Yeah, I, I don't know, actually. As cartographers, we, especially the kind of cartography we do at Stamen, we do sit in between programmers and more know, pure designers or, or people who design is their primary profession and how they think about things. Cartographers are a little bit of both. So I don't think in the same way that a lot of the people at Stamen are designers who then learn to become cartographers or programmers who learn to become cartographers. In some sense, some cartographers are like learning to be designers or trying to learn like, what is it, what is it to see the world as a, as a design problem, a design challenge? And for me, so much of that just comes to thinking about how users are going to use something. So user experience design, user interaction, those are all things that are, are specialties, but are, for me, kind of at the core of what design is. So all of those steps we talked about through this full stack, like when you're choosing how to store things in a database, you're looking at questions of what is the efficiency of you know how much is this server going to cost us those kind of things but when the overall picture is how are our users going to use this map and what is going to make it most beautiful but also useful for them you can think about that even when you're deciding how you're going to store something in a database because the ripple effect of what you do there will will make things easier or harder when you get to the kind of final visual design part do you enjoy like working with within these kinds of constraints? So yeah, making something that's beautiful, making something that's useful to to the end user, to the consumers of the products, but also making something that's within a budget and has this efficiency. Uh, like, do, do you enjoy solving those sort of like problems with, within like a rather complex set of constraints? Yeah, I think because uh, I really like how it is this really elaborate network of dependencies, the, the things that everything depends on everything else uh, in the system like this. It always feels a little bit stressful trying to trying to satisfy all of those demands, and you can never satisfy all of them. It's always balancing between different demands. But it is really interesting, and it forces you to find new solutions to things because of these really different competing constraints. So every project, even though we're working with the same 
data about the same world. It's not always the same data, but the same problems, the specifics of each problem of how each map turns out is really unique to how it's going to be used and the various other constraints on the project. So it, it keeps it different each time, even though it's still from a really, if you look at it from really far away, they're, they're all still maps. And maybe maybe a lot of people don't distinguish how how different they might be. You know, ideally, you, you, people are not spending too much time really examining our maps. Like if, if we're talking about a mountain biker map, you want them to think the map is fun and cool, and you want them to be excited to use your map, your particular application instead of using someone else's map. So you want them to sort of notice it and like it, but you don't want them spending a whole lot of time thinking like, oh, I really admire the way you put the style effect on this on this road. You don't want them to be distracted. You want them to get out there and be enjoying their ride. So cartography is also one of these design tasks where if you are successful, often it will go somewhat unnoticed and that can be great. And that can be a mark of it's working well if you're not getting people complaining about it or, or noticing it. If it just is seamlessly helping them do the thing they want to do, then that's often a really good map. It's interesting. I remember hiring a, a wedding venue when my wife and I, we, we were going to get married. And the person we were working with, she told us, what, what, what about service? What kind of level of service have you, were you thinking about you know, in terms of people helping us, bringing food, that kind of thing? And we had no clue. And what, one of the points she raised was that service is this invisible thing. Like it, good service just sort of happens around you. It's not in the way. It's not a distraction. It's just, you know, you, you don't notice it kind of thing. And it sounds like that's what you're getting at when you think about good design, good map design. You mentioned earlier on that you'd been working for Stamen Design for about nine years now. Knowing what you know now, you know what I mean? Like having been through this process again and again and again, work, working with different clients, what would you tell your, your younger self when you started nine years ago? If you could go back in time, what would you say to, to yourself? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think the way we do this work has changed a lot in a very technical level. Like the, the tools that we used nine years ago, we don't use that much anymore. There's been really interesting turnover in terms of the, the things that are available to do. But yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a tough one because I think there are so many maps that we made then or that I, especially the first maps I got to work on at Stamen, where you want it to last forever. And I think there's, there's something that I've kind of come to peace with that the maps are also evolving and that the way you make a map needs to evolve and each client's needs will evolve over the years. So a map that you made for someone a few years ago, it's not the end of the world if they want you to come back and redesign it. It's actually a great opportunity. And some of the maps that we made that I remember making uh, in the in the early years, and I also, I came into Stamen a couple years after some of our most famous maps were made. So like the watercolor map that so many people love, that I love, was made just a couple of years before I started. It still works in and it's the code is getting very old and you know a lot of it won't last forever. But um the fact that some of those maps are still around is sort of magical, but it's also we're just lucky that they are. That you know some of the some of the other maps from those of that time are just gone and you just never can quite see them or experience them in the same way. And that's that's okay. And the mapping moves on. These are not the same kind of like a print atlas that if you take care of it, it'll still be around for a hundred years, and you can admire somebody's really old old maps. These are more more fleeting, and yeah, I kind of am, I'm okay with that. I, maybe I was I would have been more scared of that idea earlier on. 
What about looking into the future? So we've seen a lot of change in terms of mapping. You've mentioned it yourself a few times in the, in the last couple of minutes that tools have changed. Our ideas around mapping our cartography have changed. The clients that are consuming the, the products that we're making have changed. During your career, what, what do you think have been the most sort of exciting steps that you've seen? Has it been something like, I don't, I don't know, the possibilities that showed up when we, when we got vector tiles or perhaps you know, 3D visualizations? Has there been anything that's really stood out for you as like a kind of a, a step change in, in terms of cartography and, and this kind of mapping at scale? For sure, the jump to vector tiles was huge. There, there are some things that you simply can't do with vector tiles. It's, for example, you could never really, we've thought about it, but there's really no way to recreate the watercolor map in the vector tile paradigm. It's just so much of that is really unique to the way raster tiles worked. But there's so much flexibility and with vector tiles that it is coming a lot more to that promise of anyone can make a map. It's not easy. You know, I'm not saying it's like easy for anyone to go in and just restyle a map and have it look good and be effective, but it is more and more within reach of more people to really have a customized based map in ways that was not, was just simply not possible about 10 years ago. So yeah, the, the, the vector tiles has really been a big change as I've experienced it in our work recently. The things that are on the horizon, yeah, the, this move to 3D and to especially smaller scales of detail, like indoor maps, better 3D models of buildings, that's been kind of promised, has been on the horizon for a while. And I think we're finally getting to that point where 3D maps are starting to become a lot more common and indoor maps for some of the bigger players like Google or you know, you're starting to see them like a lot of major buildings now you can have an indoor map as part of it that's just going to be exploding even more as we have more kind of data collection from mobile devices that have lidar built into them and uh, just more street view and more more kind of easy to collect 3d data that anyone can collect and share that's all happening really right on the horizon and i don't really know how that's going to integrate with global zoom down to street level maps that we've kind of gotten used to like that jump from being able to go from a global map down to street level and then into a building is going to be really interesting to see how we make that happen. And then part of that sort of related to that, but not necessarily the same thing is just how much of this is data collection for autonomous vehicles and how much you know you need a 3D model of a street for a car to drive itself. I don't really know what to think about that either. That's going to be a lot of creating maps for machines rather than for humans to look at and how does that does that become a whole separate set of maps like is the data that you need for a self-driving car going to be the same data you could use for a pedestrian who wants to have a 3d model of a street or is it going to be totally different i don't know how how those worlds are going to talk together but that's also something really interesting that is happening right now and will become a bigger thing we'll have to to deal with in the coming years yeah, that, that is really interesting how much overlap there will be between those two things, between what the humans need and what the machines need. That'll, uh, yeah, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. You talked about customized maps before. So that I think you said something like the promise of the customized map that you know very soon we'll all be able to have customized maps. Uh, I'd like to t try and take this thought a step further and say, what about a personalized map? So not just a custom to my organization, but a personalized map. And and the way I see the internet, for example, the internet is personalized. So it, as I interact online, my, my experience is, is personal. It's not the same as what you get. It's based on my, my previous 
you know, likes, dislikes, the thing, I, the things I spend time with, the way I have interacted with with digital objects in the past, and it's a personalized experience I get. I wonder if we'd get if we ever get to the stage we'll have this with maps, where it'll be personalized based on what we have done in the past, how we've used maps in the past, and each of us might see like a a personalized view of the world. Yeah, I think that's coming. I think it's well, in a sense, it's happening that Google has been incorporating this idea into their maps for the last few years, where the POIs, the points of interest you see when you search for a restaurant, might be biased towards the types of restaurants that they think you've gone to in the past or that you might be interested in. Or we'll see things that maybe even the the restaurants that your friends visit become the ones that are more likely to be displayed on your map. Or we'll also see things like as you are navigating, you know, switching between driving a car to maybe I want bicycle routes, it's just the map itself sort of changes knowing what you're doing at the time or, or knowing what you're asking to do at the time. So the more we customize a map, the more you do have to give up a bit more of your privacy to the computer that is generating the map. It needs to know what your preferences are. It needs to know maybe what your habits are. And if you're okay with sharing those things, yeah, the map can be quite customized, but you have how do you collect that information and how do you safely keep track of it? And to what extent are people comfortable with that? And, and I guess too, how do, you, how do you stop that from being a distraction? So what we see again and again in the digital world is that these products that we use, that they become a, a distraction. They, they're demanding of our time and our attention. And, and earlier in the conversation, you were saying, you know, when you make a map for my, my mountain bikers there, that mountain bike map that we're talking about, you don't want it to get in the way. It's a practical tool. It's getting them to where they're trying to go without distracting them. And I, I think that it'll be interesting again to see how that plays out in a world where our maps become more and more personalized. Well, for sure. That's an interesting way of thinking of it because it could go the other direction, right? The more the more something becomes personalized, the more it it might know when you're actually going to look for something. And when you are not interested in looking at something, it can hide that stuff. You know, if it's if it's super personalized, like if it knows your car is low on gas, or in my case, we just got an electric car, but the built-in navigation still shows the location of gas stations. I'm like, can't you know that this is being installed in an electric car? I don't need to know where the gas stations are. I only need the chargers. But the more it knows when you're going to be looking for a gas station, then at other times it can hide that information for you. So it could be that we could have very, very non-distracting maps if it very intimately knows what you're interested in at any given moment. But yeah, I think that the distraction is also a, a big factor for just the navigation experience, which is something we've been doing some more work on um, with some clients recently. And it's really interesting to, once you start digging into how much you actually look at a map when you're navigating, if it's, if it's built into your, into your vehicle through, you know, Android auto or CarPlay, like you probably are almost never looking over there and reading labels. Um, you mostly don't even really need to see much other than your upcoming turn. It becomes less and less of a map while you're actually navigating. And that's, that's something that is really interesting to think about is like planning the navigation is when you need a map, not necessarily when you're actually in the process of navigating unless something goes wrong. And it's all about distraction. Yeah, like all about trying to really, really just avoid distracting a driver by making them look at a map while they're driving that's it's it's life and death questions often that is really interesting i I never thought of it like that i wonder if we'll again like think about personalization knowing okay 
you're in the planning phase now. Here's a, you know, a more detailed map. Now we're in the execution phase. We're navigating, we're trying to get something. Here's a, a less detailed, less distracting map. Yeah, exactly. And I think also I, I rely a lot on the features of in Google Maps when I'm driving. Like, oh, I need, I, well, I need to keep going, keep going to my destination, but I need to make a stop of a certain kind. Like, you know, can you suggest yeah, a gas station that's not too far off my route? Or like, how do you modify what I'm doing without making me completely stop what I'm doing to reset and get my overview again? Like, how do we adjust a little bit on the fly in a gentle way, knowing what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, without taking you out of your flow. Yeah, it's all very interesting and clearly lots more work that is going to be done in that in that arena. Hey, Alan, I, I've really enjoyed talking with you. It's been, it's been a total eye-opener for me and uh, I appreciate your patience sort of slowly but surely walking us, us through this full-stack cartography as you so so beautifully phrase it. It's been great. Thanks. Where can people go? So we've mentioned Stamen Design a couple of times. Is there anywhere else people can go if they want to reach out to you, connect with you or continue this conversation? Yeah, you definitely reach out to us at Stamen where we have a blog where we've been posting a lot of this stuff. We also have our own podcast recently too. So a whole episode we talked specifically about base maps. Um, so check that out. But yeah, you can reach me as well. My on Twitter and, and on social media, my username is mapping mashups. I haven't changed it in a long time, but that was back in the day when I was doing my master's degree. Like mashups was the whole the whole buzzword around maps, and now no one thinks about a mashup anymore. But that was the day of like hacking Google Maps to put some pins on it before Google even had an API that would let you to do that. So yeah, definitely reach out to me on all the socials and and check out Stamen's blog, Stamen's social media, and Stamen podcast. We talk about all these things in many different ways. Again, Alan, really appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Thank you. So thank you very much for listening all the way to the end. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Alan, a lead cartographer at Stamen Design. There'll be a bunch of links in the show notes today. Firstly, there'll be a link to Stamen Design and where you can find out more information about some of the things that Alan was talking about during this episode. Secondly, there'll be a link to healthscience.io. So as I mentioned during the introduction of this episode, Health Science is a global mapping project to create an online map of every health facility in the world and make the details of each location easily accessible. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes of this episode, healthscience.io. It's worth checking out. It's also worth mentioning that if you enjoyed this episode, you might really enjoy an episode with the legendary John Nielsen. You can find that in the archives of this podcast. So scroll back through the archives, look for an episode called Communicating with Maps, the Art of Cartography. And there'll also be a link in the show notes to it on our website if you would prefer to read about it. But this is a brilliant episode, well worth checking out. So you might have noticed that these podcasts are not coming out at the usual cadence. I'm moving away from a weekly schedule to a bi-weekly schedule simply because I'll be traveling the next couple of months and I think it's going to be too stressful keeping up with the weekly podcast. We're traveling back to New Zealand as a family and I really want to have some time to, to spend with my parents, to spend with my friends and of course to spend with my family over there. And I'm, I'm afraid that I'll end up not doing a great job of either thing. I'm afraid that I'll end up not doing a great job of spending time with them, with the people I care about. And I don't think I'm going to do a great job of producing something that, that is worth your time as well. So for the time being, I'm moving to a, a bi-weekly publishing cadence. So if you're wondering what's going on, that's what's happening. I think too, I'm going to experiment with resurfacing some of the older episodes. I think at the moment I've published somewhere around 175, 180 episodes. And a lot of them, because they were published earlier on, 
I don't think they get the credit that they deserve, so I'm going to try and fish a few of those out of the archive. So if you've been wondering what's going on, why the podcast hasn't been arriving on that sort of weekly cadence that perhaps you've been used to, this is the reasoning behind it. And if you see episodes popping up which are clearly labelled as from the archive, this is also an experiment that I'm running. This is something I'm going to try out and, and just see what the reaction is. Feel free to reach out to me if you have any feedback or suggestions about topics that you would like me to cover on this podcast. I, I would love to hear from you. I think the best place to get a hold of me is simply mapscaping.com. That's our website. You'll find our social media channels there and there'll also be a contact form or just write to me on info at mapscaping.com. Okay, that's it for me. I'll see you again soon. Cheers. Bye.